This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys ready to study God's Word together? Yeah. It's a good audible yes. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts chapter 15. I want to remind you what we're doing this fall. Uh, we are not doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. We are really looking at the book of Acts, seeing highlights from the book of Acts. And uh, so, therefore, we're going from Acts chapter 11 to Acts chapter 15 today. And what transpires between Acts chapter 12 and 14 is basically Paul's first missionary journey. And as he continues to go from town to town In the first century Greco-Roman world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, God continues to grant favor in that mission. Peoples are continually coming to know Christ as Savior through the work of the gospel. And the workers of God, Paul and his companion Barnabas and others, are continuing to face threats because they name the name of Jesus. They are persecuted, they are beaten, they are arrested, and they are, they're being driven out of town. And that pretty much characterizes the first missionary journey. And when you get to chapter 15, chapter 15 in the book of Acts is quite possibly the most important moment in early church history. Because something is, is about to happen here that will define the course of church history for the next 2,000 years. And if the early church leaders had gotten this wrong, I want you to know what the stakes are. If the early church leaders had gotten this wrong, it is quite possible that not a single one of us in this room who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was that important And God used his faithful servants and God used his early church to work through this conflict and work through these questions in order to preserve the the purity of the gospel and to continue the gospel mission moving forward without adulterating this message. As you see in your notes today, we're going to be focusing on gospel clarity. And the reason why this is so crucial is because, as we're going to find out this morning, is ever since the inception of the church of Jesus Christ, there have been those who sought to either change, adulterate, or in some ways modify the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, for the sake of cultural sensitivities, for the, sake of, for the sake of intellectual arguments, or for even for the sake of personal gain. As a matter of fact, when you look even this week, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this week marked the 40th anniversary of the events of Jonestown in the United States of America, where a cult leader assembled a group of people to himself and swore, made them swear allegiance to him and to his ideology and adulterating the gospel of Jesus Christ, adulterating the church of Jesus Christ, and would ultimately lead these people to drink Kool-Aid with sedatives and cyanide in it. And it was a mass murder, mass murder-suicide. And when over 900 American citizens died through this religious cult act, it was actually the largest It was the largest uh, act of murder in America all the way up until the September 11th attacks. And you can say, well, Chris, sometimes it's not always that big. Yeah, you're right. It's not always that big in adulterating the gospel and adulterating the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's subtle. Uh, You go to the time of the Reformation in the Catholic Church. They were preaching Christ. They were preaching God. They were preaching many true things about Christianity, but then there were these slight changes. And the changes made all the difference. And so Martin Luther would take his stand and he would nail his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And he was not complaining because of the color of the carpet or because who was selected to serve on the hospitality committee that next year. 
It was because the gospel of Jesus Christ had been adulterated. And Martin Luther knew that that was the, that was the central component of Christianity that must not be changed, that must not be moved if the gospel mission and the purity of God's church would move forward. So brothers and sisters, what I want you to see today is that from the time of Jesus and the apostles all the way to today, there have always been those who seek to change the gospel message, to make it more palatable or even for human gain. But throughout church history, there have been those champions of orthodoxy. God has raised up at those different moments in order to preserve the purity of the one true gospel that has the ability to save. And what I want you to see today is this watershed moment for the early church. When there are people inside the church who had been raised in Judaism, who began putting demands on these Gentile converts to not only believe the gospel... Faith and repentance and grace. But to add to it external rites, external rituals that would be added to the gospel in order to make people saved and to be right with God. And I want you to see how these early church leaders handled it. Now, we're going to look at verses 1 through 35 today, but we're not going to be able to look at this in depth. We're going to look at big picture truths here. And so forgive me for not uh, being able to answer every question that this passage may bring up today. But I want to start with verse 1 in chapter 15. So after we learn about more of the gospel progression through Paul and Barnabas, we get another contrast word here in chapter 15, verse 1. But... But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's what you got. You got Paul and Barnabas going back to the church at Jerusalem, the mothership, where everything started. Remember that, that there was a, a large group of former Jews who believed the gospel message of Jesus Christ and had come out of Judaism, spiritually speaking, but they were still culturally Jews. And so you had that tension, right? And so how do I sift through what is cultural, what is traditional, but what is core doctrine to believe for salvation? And so Paul and Barnabas are going back to the mothership where everything started that came out of the Jewish faith. And along the way, they're passing by some of these churches that had started along the way in places like Phoenicia and Samaria. And while they're on their way, they're telling the other believers about all that God is doing among other uh, uh, nationalities in other countries among the Gentiles. And they're excited about it. And they get back to Jerusalem and they recount a lot of these things to the Jerusalem brothers. And it says that they were excited about it. Well, not exactly everybody. Not exactly everybody because in verse 5 it says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see, there were actually some Pharisees, some leaders of the Jewish faith who had converted to Christianity, had converted to understand and believe and cherish the gospel. But they were still Pharisees. And they were still very much versed uh, in their rules and their practices and their traditions. And they, were, they very much cherished their Jewish lineage and their Jewish heritage. And so it's almost like, can't you see them like standing against the wall? And everyone's excited. Have you ever been in that party before? Ever been in that gathering? Where it seems like everybody in the room is excited, but you are skeptical at best, right? I'm not so sure about this. Can't you see them leaning up against the wall and saying, it's great. 
It's great that they're believing in God. It's great that they're believing in Jesus Christ. But have they been circumcised? Do they keep the law of Moses? Do they cherish the ceremonies and the traditions and the rituals that we have had from our father's generation and our grandfather's generation and our great-grandfather's generation? Are you telling me that these people who are not even of the Jewish people, these others, these Gentiles, that they are on the same plane as us and they're not doing all the things that our forefathers held dear? I'll rejoice when they get circumcised and they go through the same rituals that we have gone through. And so what do you do? Do you practice syncretism? And syncretism is the act and uh, when you think about missiology and you think about going to other cultures that you just simply uh, start adapting the gospel of Jesus Christ for every culture and so the gospel just takes on a different meaning and a different message depending on what culture that you are in or what continent you're in. Is that what you do if you're the early church leaders? Well, it could have been a temptation. You could have said, well, let's keep the peace. We don't want the Jews and the Gentiles to go to war with each other. So let the Jewish people have their gospel and let the Gentiles have their gospel. But that's not what the early church did. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What is Peter doing here? Why did we ever go to the Gentiles to begin with? It wasn't their idea. It wasn't even my idea. It's because God himself commissioned us to do this. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And look at the response. And all the assembly fell silent. Have you ever been there? You are so confident that you were right until you're proved wrong. And then you're speechless. And it's quite embarrassing. It's awkward. You've been there? They fell silent. And they listened then to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, then James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's stop there for a moment. There are two timeless truths that I believe the Jerusalem Council teaches us. Because in just a, a moment, we're going to see what happens from all of this discourse. There's going to be a council that has uh, been put together and they have heard these arguments and they are ultimately going to defend orthodoxy as we've just read and they're going to send back a letter to those believers in Antioch and that's, that can be spread among the other Gentile converts. And so from this council, from this watershed moment, there are at least two timeless truths that this council teaches us. And the first one is this. We must never abandon gospel clarity. We must never abandon gospel clarity. You know, there are many debates in this world. There are many topics where there are two sides, three sides, or four sides to that issue. And in most of those cases, it is quite plausible to come up with different conclusions based upon your past, based upon your intellect, or based upon the circumstances you're facing. You think about politics. There are very few 
black and white areas in politics. It's just reality. And none of us know as much as we think we know. You can, good people can debate and come to different conclusions. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are minor doctrines and major doctrines. And we are united on major doctrines, but on the minor doctrines, there's a lot of room. Where you may come to this conviction, and I may come to this conviction. This denomination may say this, this denomination may say that. But there are some things that's worth the fight. There are some things that are worth taking your stand. And the gospel message of Jesus Christ is one of those places. So we must never abandon gospel clarity. few things here that, that I would say, here's application for us. Number one, know it. Number one, know it. Know the gospel. Know what it is. Know what it is not. And may I make this suggestion to you. When you know what it is, therefore it will produce what it's not. Because you will know the real thing so well that when you hear an aberration, you can detect it from a mile away. Know the gospel. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Peter says this, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what, congregation? Faith. Verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace. Of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now I believe implied in the term faith. Throughout the uh, New Testament. I believe implied there is both uh, faith and repentance. Because faith and repent, repentance is a simultaneous act. Where we are turning from our sins. And we're turning towards Christ. We're turning away from our sinful past. And towards the holiness of God. Jesus codifies it this way in Mark chapter 1. And this, remember, Mark's gospel is the most abridged gospel, and so it gets right to the point. And so in Mark 1.14, Mark writes that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. By the way, when you say, when you see good news of God, that means gospel of God, because the term gospel and good news are really interchangeable. So proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. No mention of circumcision. No mention of the Mosaic law. No mention of other rituals or rites, but repentance and belief. And so what I want, you to, want to show you today through this passage, what we're seeing in Acts 15 and the New Testament at large, there are three words now we can, there's tons of doctrine out there with Christianity. And we should study doctrine and we should cherish doctrine. It is one of the goals of my pastoral ministry and preaching ministry to teach you good doctrine. But brothers and sisters, there are three words when it comes to the gospel that I want you to remember and to know, to cherish, to hope in and tell. And it's these three words. Repentance, faith, and grace. Those three words sum up the Christian gospel in a simple nutshell that then defines all the complexities of life here on earth and beyond. Repentance, faith, and grace. What does a person need to know to become a Christian? Repent of your sins. Place faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and receive that gift by His grace. You cannot earn it. It's a gift from Him. Repentance, faith, and grace. I want you to get up every morning this week and the first thought in your mind, I want you to remember repentance, faith, and grace, and I want it to effuse from your language and your conversation about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 puts it all together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's keep moving. I want you to know it. I want you, secondly, to defend it. Defend it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, if we believe the gospel, we must 
defend it. We don't defend it militantly. We don't hurt people over it, either with our words or with our actions physically. But the gospel of Jesus Christ should be defended. And it should be defended passionately. It should be defended assertively. And that's what happens here. So what you see is you see three, uh, well really four. You see, you, you see three defenses and four of these early leaders doing this. You see Peter doing it. And then you see Paul and Barnabas doing it together. And then you see James doing it here. And so let me just walk us through very quickly. Peter appeals to their own salvation. He's looking at the Jewish converts and, and he's appealing to them saying, remember how you were saved by grace through your faith. Remember how Jesus saved you. Verse 7, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that I would go preach to the Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. And so Peter appeals to their own experience of salvation to say they have experienced exactly what you experienced. Paul and Barnabas then step up in verse 12 and says that Paul and Barnabas related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That not only did they preach this gospel to the Gentiles, but when they preached the gospel to them and they were converted, God accompanied that preaching by signs, wonders, and miracles just as he had done in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So he's going further to say everything that we've experienced with the Gentiles is exactly what we experienced with us in Jerusalem. But then James steps up to the plate. And James is last here, probably out of respect, because James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now remember, James was a skeptic himself. James thought that his brother Jesus was crazy. James wanted to have Jesus committed but then after Jesus resurrects from the grave and James sees him post-resurrection, everything changed. And James becomes a believer. James falls down in worship to his brother Jesus. And James becomes a great leader in the early church. And he was such an example that he would go on to be called James the Just because of his righteous conduct among uh, the believers. And so James steps up to the plate and he doesn't appeal simply to experience. And he doesn't appeal to the signs and wonders. James appeals to the scriptures themselves. And James steps up and he says, brothers, listen to me. <laughs> That's authority. Listen to me. So when James, because of his place, they're going to listen. Simeon, stop there for a moment. Simeon is the Jewish name for Simon. James is addressing the Jewish Christians. He's meeting them on their terms. He's meeting them in their station. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now just hold there. And then verse 15, he's going to quote Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And that, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. This is prophesying how God was going to raise back up God's people Israel. He's going to redeem them. He's going to restore them. And he's making it clear that the Gentile salvation is the way in which he's going to do that. And James is stepping up to the plate to say, that this prophetic word that you have been reading for generations, that was passed on to you by your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers before you, these people over here that you're trying to enslave again, these are the people the Old Testament scriptures were talking about. These Jewish Christians would have had a high regard for scripture. They would have had a high regard for the prophets. And James is invoking the prophets to make his case for why they are wrong 
to place these demands on the Gentiles. Now go back to verse 14. I said it's important. In verse 14, he says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. You might want to underline a people for his name. Now this, spiritually, theologically speaking, James just bust a cap on them theologically. uh, James just metaphorically, theologically slapped them in the face. And here's why. Because when you go throughout the Old Testament, it is God's people Israel over and over and over again. God says that I have called you out from among the nations to make you a people for my name. And James just took the phrase, took the title that was reserved for the people of Israel and just gave it to the Gentile non-Jewish believers. I know he didn't. Mic drop. This is huge. And this is good news for you and for me today. Because I'm looking at a room, and a room this size, I know there may be someone in this room or a couple of someones, but I'm looking at a room who very few of us were born biologically Jews. But yet the gospel has come to us, and we've believed it. And James reminds them that the same gospel of grace that saved the Israelites from among the nations is the same gospel of grace that has saved us to Jesus Christ. We have all been saved through the same gospel, through faith, through repentance, by His grace. So these early church leaders defend it. If you really want a great uh, cross study here in Scripture, you can go to the book of Galatians. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to address these Judaizers, is what he called them. These people who wanted to take these early converts who had believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who had received the gospel of repentance, faith, and grace, and started attaching to it the act of circumcision and other Jewish acts, uh, ceremonies from the Mosaic law. And Paul is relentless in the book of Galatians. And so he wrote this probably a couple of years before the Jerusalem Council. And I just want to walk you through Galatians very quickly here and just show you how he does this. In Galatians chapter 1, in verses 8 and 9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You go to chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You go all the way over to chapter 5 in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And in verse 12, which is probably one of the most graphic texts in all of the scriptures, here's what Paul says. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I'll leave it to you to go home and figure out what exactly that means. You're going to cut a little bit? Why not cut all the way is what Paul is saying. It's how passionate he was about preserving orthodoxy. And you get all the way to the end of the book in verse 15 of chapter 6. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Brothers and sisters, you are not saved today by Jesus Christ and. It is not Jesus Christ and church membership. It's not Jesus Christ and baptism. 
It is not Jesus Christ and sacraments. It's not Jesus Christ and your good works. It's not Jesus Christ and your performance. It's never Jesus Christ and you are saved through faith in Jesus alone. And these first century apostles got it and they preserved it. I I, I love this from a, a faithful pastor I know. Here is gospel math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I want you to know the gospel. I want you to defend the gospel. Thirdly, I want you to preach the gospel. In verse 7, Peter says that it was by his mouth by speaking the words that the Gentiles believed. And we've seen through our study of Acts that it's the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem, Samaria, Egypt, Phoenicia, Syria, to both Jew and Gentile alike that brings salvation to people. And the reason why we preach is because if we don't preach, if we don't share, then no one hears. And Romans 10 says, if they don't hear, how can they be saved? Why? Why must we never abandon gospel clarity? Is it because from the inception of the church of Jesus Christ that believers are just supposed to be closed-minded and intolerant? That's not it. Is it because Christians are called to be argumentative and always looking for a fight? No, that can't be it either. Or is it because we're simply an assembly of dusty old religious curmudgeons? That's not it either. The reason why we must never, ever, ever abandon gospel clarity, brothers and sisters, is because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ in Romans 1.16 that tells us that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want you to consider this for a moment. Every human being has been born with the cancer of sin. And it's running through our veins, running through our hearts, and it affects almost everything we do. And it distorts the way we view God, ourselves, and the world. You were born with a disease, even though sometimes we don't recognize it. I want you to imagine for a moment that this cancer that is running through our bodies and our minds and our hearts, that there is a perfect potion, a perfect elixir that upon drinking it will not only eradicate the cancer from inside of you, but it will literally transform you into a completely new person. Where it's not just that you kind of got most of it taken away, but you were literally made whole, new, and perfect as if it never existed. That's a powerful elixir. That's a powerful potion. Now imagine with me for a moment the pride and the arrogance And the audacious nature of thinking that somehow, if we just change the formula just a little bit, it might work just a little bit better. It's ludicrous. If if we're physically hurt with an infirmity, and we know that this is what will cure me, you would never change that. You would drink it and say, where do I get more of this? That's what's at stake with gospel clarity. We spent most of our time on that one. We're going to spend the the short time we have remaining looking at the second timeless truth and principle that the Jerusalem Council teaches us. So it was a watershed moment for the church in one way because it reminds us that we must never abandon gospel clarity. But secondly, we're reminded that we must always pursue brotherly charity. We must always pursue brotherly charity. See, there's a second thing at play here. So let me set it up for you this way. You have these Jewish Christians who grew up very Jewish with all of the ceremonies, rituals, and traditions that accompanied it. 
You see, if you were a Jew living in the first century, it's not just that you were religiously a Jew, spiritually a Jew. You were also culturally, ethnically a Jew. So it was very hard to uh, separate between your spiritual state and what was your familial lineage. That's what made this such a hard issue in the first century. But then you have the Gentiles over here who grew up very not Jewish. And they had entire other practices, other cultures, other normalities and traditions. And so the challenge here is how do you have one church of Jesus Christ, one gospel, and being unified around that gospel with such very divergent cultural, ethnic traditions? And the reason why this is a watershed moment is because this is the moment where very easily you could have had a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church. But we don't have that. And it's because of this moment. So here's James's solution. Verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's James's solution. You Jewish believers, you need not put the yoke of slavery on these Gentile believers that even you and your forefathers could not 100% follow. You shouldn't do that. Don't be putting on them what Jesus never put on them. And don't be putting on them what you yourself never could do apart from Christ anyway. But secondly, you Gentile believers, you've got to understand that there are cultural and ethnic things at play among these Jewish Christians. And the things that he lists here, these were all ceremonies that in the Gentile world were obscured and became a part of idol temple worship. Things like uh, sexual uh, orgies and things like uh, meat sacrifice to idols and um, the strangling of blood. And, Paul, and, and James looks at them and says, when you are around your Jewish brothers and sisters, you need to be sensitive to these things. You need to be sensitive to the ceremonies that they've grown up, grown up with. And so don't you make demands on them to be more Gentile. And you Jews do not make demands upon the Gentiles to be more Jewish. There's a place in the gospel for both of you. And we're all united around this gospel of grace and faith. And so here's what I want you to learn here from having charity towards our brothers and sisters among some of these minor doctrines and these minor differences that we experience, whether it's cultural, traditions, first one is this love your brother more than your tradition you know for the jewish person they needed to love their gentile brother more than their jewish traditions in verse one they make this demand unless you are circumcised according to the custom of moses you cannot be saved in verse 19 james says that we should not trouble those of the gentiles who turn to God. And down in verse 24, when the news gets back to the Gentiles, the letter wrote to them, said, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us to come and bring you this letter and to bring your mind at ease is basically what the letter said. We need to love our brother more than our traditions. Friends, here's where it it meets reality. There are those of us in this room who come from a variety of backgrounds. Some of us have come from Catholic backgrounds. Some of us have come from Hindu backgrounds. Some of us have come from legalistic, pharisaical backgrounds. Some of us have come from charismatic backgrounds. But as we're united in this body called Mill City Church... What we are to do, there may be some of those things in your background that you still cherish and you hold to and you believe it really brings a lot of encouragement and ministering to your soul. But you must be very careful that you never impose upon another believer 
what you hold dear when it's a matter of secondary importance at best in the church of Jesus Christ. God has given us room to have differences of conviction on some of those things. And so we must love our brothers, we must love our sisters more than our traditions. So that's how we would address the Jewish Christians. But to the Gentile Christians in the text, here's a principle we learn from them. Love your brother more than your liberty. More, love your brother more than your liberty. You see, for the Gentile believers, they knew that all the ceremonies that the Jewish Christians still participated in did not make them right with God and had no uh, means to make them better in God's sight. And they were freed from those things. And they were freed to do a lot of other things, culturally speaking. One of the most specific things was the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. And if you want a good cross-study here, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 14 sometime this week in your, in your quiet time with God. Basically, here's what happened. There was idol temple worship. And if you were, a gen, if you were uh, in the Gentile world, you would go to a temple and you would worship pagan gods. And you would worship a plethora of idols. And what you would do is you would go and buy uh, animals. And you would bring them in and you would slaughter them. And you would kill them and sacrifice them to these idols as an offering. Well now, if you've come into faith in Jesus Christ. And you've abandoned your idols. But you know that idols aren't really anything. Because there's only one true God. You've abandoned the temple worship. But one of the practices of the first century world is, what are you going to do with those good animals after they're sacrificed? You're not going to let a good piece of meat go to waste. And so what you would do it is you would sell it at a discount price down at the local market basket. And if you were grocery shopping on a fixed budget, it would be much more advantageous for you to go shopping at the, uh, at the idol market and take the meat that had been sacrificed and you could take it home and cook it. And the first century Gentile Christians knew that there was nothing wrong with eating the meat because it was just meat. But to the Jewish Christians, it was more than that. That's a piece of meat that had participated in idol worship. And so when I come over to your house for dinner and community group, don't be serving me meat that you bought at a discounted price with the coupon at the market basket because that's going to violate my conscience. So see the word to our Gentile brothers is love your brother more than your liberty. You know you have liberty to do this, but if it offends your brother, don't do it. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Romans 14, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat mink or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And friends, you and I should abide by this principle today. There may be a whole host of things in your life that consciously, in your mind, your conscience is not violated by it as a Christian. It could be the meat at the idol market. It could be drinking alcohol. It could be watching a movie that's rated R. It could be going to a dance. It could be going to a party. There could be a whole host of things that in your mind, you know that your faith is right. And morally speaking, it's not corrupting you in any way. And you know that it's a fine thing for you to do. But if it would offend your brother... Or it's a big deal to your sister. We don't do those things with those people. And we don't flaunt that in front of them. Because we must love our brothers and love our sisters more than our liberty. Thirdly, I want you to see this. Love your God by maintaining gospel and relational unity. You see, it's not just about loving our brothers and sisters. It's also about loving God. And when we love our brothers and sisters more than our traditions and more than our liberty... We're also loving our God. We should be living and operating in such a way in the gospel that we are looking out for each other. We're not trying to one-upmanship one another. 
We're not trying to prove why one person is right and one person is wrong or why your conscience is weaker or my conscience is stronger. We're to do everything out of love. Everything out of sacrifice. And there may be that thing today for you that you know that you have liberty in your Christian walk to do it. But the reality is you love that thing more than your brother. And you would love to continue to do that and saturate your life in that than to sacrifice that thing for the sake of your brother or sister who might struggle with that or stumble because of that. I'm not giving you anything to weigh you down today. So if you're thinking, but what about this? What about this? If we start getting into those legalistic, pharisaical questions and with all the whatabouts, we're missing the point of the text. Yes, there's liberty. But on any given day or any given moment, I've got to weigh my liberty with my love. Do I love my brother more or do I love my liberty more? We must always pursue brotherly charity we must never abandon gospel clarity. I want you to see how both the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians responded to James's recommendation. Look with me first. Look with me first at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church Just stop there. James's recommendation, everybody from the Jewish side, yeah, this is good. This is good. We welcome this. And so what they do is they write a letter and they sign the letter. The leaders sign the letter and they send some of their best because that's what we've been seeing through the book of Acts. They send some of their best leaders back to Antioch, back to the Gentiles to report to them what was decided. Well, then look over uh, at once the letter is read. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I don't know if I'm just a theological nerd this morning, but brothers and sisters, this is remarkable. And I want you to know that this is probably the most important moment in church history in the New Testament. And just seeing how God used leadership, his spirit and truth to persuade two very dissenting opinions and bringing them united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to know that this gospel is just as uniting today. And so what I want to do in these closing couple of minutes is I want to ask you some probing questions. When we think about this Jerusalem council, when we think about what we've seen today, about not abandoning gospel clarity and always pursuing brotherly charity, I want to ask you where you are with the gospel today. This gospel of faith, repentance, and grace. Number one, I want to ask you this question. Have you believed it? Have you believed it? Those who had been raised in Judaism in the first century in Jerusalem, when it was proclaimed to them, they believed it. And they received Jesus Christ. They repented of sin and their way of life, renounced any other means of making them right with God, and they put faith in Jesus Christ, and they received that gift by grace. The same thing happened to the the people in Samaria, and in Phoenicia, and in Antioch, Syria. And I wonder today, have you believed it? Have you come to the moment in your life where you have consciously said, I renounce my way of life, I turn my back on my sin, and I turn towards God, and I receive this gift of God's grace? If you haven't, today would be a great day to do it. The Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. You don't have to keep putting that off. Number two, I want to ask you this question. If you have believed it, Are you altering it? Are you altering it? And and before you too quickly say no, I want you to know that every one of us in this room has pharisaical tendencies. 
Every one of us in this room, at the core of our hearts, because of our sin nature, has works-based righteousness written into our spiritual DNA. And even after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we are so tempted. We may intellectually say, I believe in grace alone, faith alone. But functionally, on any given day, we prove otherwise. Because we blow it sinfully. And we start wondering, has God turned his back on me? Am I really a Christian? Because if I was really saved, I wouldn't do this anymore. Or now that I've really blown it, I need to go and work and do penance and do some good works to cover for that bad thing that I've experienced. You see, on any given day, any given week, any one of us in this room can be tempted to alter it and place more expectations upon ourselves for gospel works in order to earn our favor with God. Or to put those things on other people? Are you altering it today? Or are you clear in your understanding and cherishing it as it has been passed down? And the third question I want to ask you is, will you share it? Will you share it? The gospel is far more powerful than you think it is. And others may be far more receptive than you assume they are. The gospel should be on our tongues, from our mouths, in our lives, constantly. We speak it to those around us, and we live it before them. And we expect God to do a work. And friends, here at Mill City, this last year, we've seen that very, very clearly. We heard about it last week from our brother. I want to encourage you, go share it. The Jerusalem Council, who knew that something this formal in this theological spiritual debate would have such application for us 2,000 years after the fact? I'm going to pray for us today. I'm going to encourage you to let God work in your heart as we sing today in response. And I'm going to encourage you to respond in your heart. And if God does lead you to a response, I'm going to encourage you to tell somebody about it today. Father, I pray today that the truth from your word would just echo in our hearts. Plant it deep down inside of our hearts. And number one, Father, I pray that you would solidify in our hearts the gospel of repentance, faith, and grace. And I pray that my brothers and sisters, I pray that myself, I pray that we would never adulterate it. We would never seek to change it. We would never seek to improve upon it. And Lord, as we know it, I pray that we would defend it day in and day out before others, but we would also defend it to our sin nature who accuses us and tries to remind us and, of where we've come from, who we're not anymore, and try to convince us that we need to add to the gospel. Father, may we not alter it. And where we are altering it, may we repent of that and come running back to that gospel of grace. And Father, lastly, I pray that you would put it on our tongues that as we leave this place, that your message would be on our hearts and on our lips, and that you would use even us, a feeble, frail, imperfect people, to be messengers of your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.